This is Urban Tiger Radio, a project supported by CybermouseMultimedia.com, sponsors of our free weekly podcasts. Search for Urban Tiger Radio in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher.com and hit the subscribe button to receive free automatic downloads. Please remember to share and rate our show before you leave. This week's show is Healy Writers R.I.P. because... I firmly believe that it no longer exists. It was a wonderful institution where writers of all calibre could get together and share their work, sometimes acrimoniously, (laughs) yet sometimes uh, uh, it was all in a good spirit. And many famous writers have come from there. Uh, Burley Doherty, one of the famous children's writers, internationally famous children's writer, good friend of mine, was also a part of Healy Writers and it spawned many a sort of career. We all had different trajectories and some of us kept on rising and some of us kept on falling, but there you go. It was a really good community, really well-spirited and everyone tried to pull together. Didn't always happen, but there you go. That's group dynamics for you. So this is my tribute to Healy Writers. R.I.P. Hi, this is Bill Allerton again from Urban Tiger Radio. Now, I had the good fortune yesterday to be out to lunch, although some people who know me say that I've been out to lunch for years, and, well, maybe they're not wrong. But I was out to lunch yesterday with Mike Hoy. Some of you may know Mike Hoy. And we were with his, his lovely missus, Liz, and... Mike was so cheerful, it was unbelievable. I haven't seen him for years, perhaps that's why he was so cheerful. But uh, Liz is very relieved to be recovering from a very serious illness, but she looks absolutely magnificent. And Mike looked about as well as you could expect anybody around our age to look these days. And we had a great and good time, good lunch, and we were out in Dromfield in the barn. It was a bit drafty, as you might imagine being called the barn. But what happened was... They brought a real smile to my face because we hadn't seen them for quite some time and it was just good to get back together again and remember a lot of things that we did in the past. I hung from a corner of that smile was a project that I've had in mind for some time to bring to the podcast. And the project was a project that we undertook as Healy Writers, R.I.P. And... It's uh, It was a writer's evening, writer's group that we all attended, and uh, it was in Healy. There's a slight irony to that, I'll tell you that in a moment. And we produced a, a tape called Pieces of Eight, Verse and Worse from Sheffield Eight. The irony is that Healy is generally Sheffield Eight, but the room we were in was in a, a little sort of archipelago of Sheffield 2 that extended into Sheffield 8 so in theory we were right and in practice we were wrong but there you go. Uh, It was recorded at Red Tape Studios by Trevor and I'm trying to remember Trevor's surname and I can't remember I still see Trevor now and again. He plays mandolin all over the place in Sheffield and this project was written and performed by members of Healy Writers Group and I'm going to bring you side one. Now side one begins with Sexist by Mike Hoy. Uh, Mike's been accused of all sorts of things 
Uh, and in this poem, Mike explains why everyone who calls him sexist is entirely wrong. But before Mike comes on to tell you his story, I'd like to explain to listeners that this track and all the following tracks are from a piece of um, oxide tape. They're from a, a cassette. And this project was started in 1991. So it's 26 years old. So the technology's moved on a little. I've cleaned up some of the tracks. I've taken out some of the hiss. But they are old recordings. Uh, maybe they were us at our best. I'm not sure. But they are very old recordings. So please bear with me in terms of quality. Okay? I'm not saying anything about the quality of the work. Just the recording. Here's Mike. This bird, Dora, called me sexist this morning. Straight up me, sexist. I'm the least sexist bloke there is. I mean, Maggie stopped bringing me me breakfast in bed when our first kid, Dylan, were born. And after that, I spent half me time washing nappies. When his third kid, Cassius, were two year old, Maggie were going to college. Her mother come to help some days, and mine and others, but most of grind fell on me. All kids were in nursery school and I had to run a mile to collect them at snap time and then trot another half with Jerry Lee on my shoulders, Cassius in my arms and Dylan trying to keep up on his own little legs. I'd stuff them onto a bus and one of the grannies had collect them at other end. When I'd run back to work, snap time would be over and sometimes in the evening I had to cook a meal and put them to bed while Maggie did her own work. It eased off a bit when Maggie got a job in a car, but I hardly got to drive damn thing. She used it for work and to pick up Jerry Lee and Dylan. From infants, we her working, I could afford to go to pub for the first time since Dylan were born. Which is how I met Sally. She claimed to be a writer even in them days when she'd only got a few poems duplicated in magazines that didn't rhyme. I got legless one Friday night and I woke up in bed with Sally on Saturday morning. I felt dead guilty. And then I made sure I'd got something to feel guilty for. Any road, I phoned home at lunchtime to say I'd had one too many and I'd slept it off at a mate's house. What Maggie said were, Let me speak to Sally. Talk about feminine intuition. I mean, I'd hardly ever mentioned Sally to her. I was so gobsmacked that I did what she told me. They went for a drink together on Sunday night, Maggie and Sally. Decided I should sleep with Sal on Wednesdays and Fridays, but I should be home Saturday afternoon to look after kids. They were both dead chuffed with that arrangement. Sally were writing a book and didn't want a man around much. Neither of them asked me what I wanted. Not that I were displeased, until it dawned on me that I still never got me breakfast in bed, still had to look after kids and spent most of me time at Sally's doing DIY jobs. I were only one who worried when Sally got pregnant. She'd had a book published and were on top at world. Maggie had got religious and said it were all part of us chosen pattern. I just saw me saying having nappies to wash again. Maggie inherited some money and moved out of our council house into a place of her own. Sally got a pile of brass for her film rights, so she bought a posh house at Totley. My name didn't feature on either at Deeds, and me and Sal started rowing as soon as Delbert were born. She'd wanted to call him Dylan after some Welsh bloke she were keen on, but I'd already got a son called that. And then she went and had twins, and I didn't get a look in. Byron and Shelley, she called them. Byron and Shelley. I was so choked I went and asked Maggie to take me back full time. Maggie were furious, went out and got a divorce. 
That messed me up, and even Sal noticed how low I were and agreed to marry me when divorce come through. I realise now that it was because she needed somebody to look after kids. I had to give up me job and become an house husband. I had three to look after, we only a year between them. Taking them on a bus were a nightmare. It took me about five minutes to get them all on. What we have into full double push chair. I never really got hang of that, cos I had to do it with twins in my arms and conductor telling me to get a move on. I dropped them a lot under that sort of pressure. Getting off were even worse. Twice a bus drove away before I unloaded them all and I had to run after it, screaming and waving my arms like a rabid octopus. Thank God I'm still not doing it nowadays, what we one-man buses and privatisation. I used to envy GIs in Vietnam. And Delbert in supermarkets pulled down stacks of baked beans or spaghetti oops. By the time I got twins into a trolley, Del had have disappeared. Sometimes he turned out at checkout, but he was usually an irate supermarket manager. Covered in chocolate or peanut butter. Delbert, that is. The manager won't be covered, just smeared a bit. I got banned from all local supermarkets and museum. In school holidays, I got lumbered with Dylan, Jerry Lee and Cassius and all. It looks wonderful on photographs, but I never took photos on my own. I was too busy trying to stop and maiming one another. When Maggie and Sally came with us on an outing, everything went dead smoothly, and that's when photographs were taken. They said it were dead easy and I shouldn't moan so much. Nobody sympathised, said I looked tired and were at me time at month. Nobody bought me flowers or chocolates, and most people assumed I were looking after kids to get wife a break, and took sadistic pleasure in me misfortunes. And if they found out I were doing it full time, they looked down on me, like I were a pimp or something. And when twins were eight and a bit more independent, Sally cancelled me season ticket. After slaving over an hot stove, working me fingers to bone, and gearing at best years of me life, she put me on transfer list. So I said to Dora this morning, don't talk to me about sexism, chick. I've been a victim of sexism all my life. Just get downstairs and make some breakfast, if you know what's good for you. Well, thank you, Mike. And I can't tell you how good it was to see you again yesterday. And you re keep reminding me of how old I am. So, <laughs> uh, right, coming up next is Reenie Crofts. Now, Reenie was, uh, or is, a very bustling, uh, impressive presence in any writer's group. And you always knew Reenie was there. She was, but she was lovely with it too. Now, this is Reenie's take on uh, what it's like to be getting to be middle-aged and still looking for love. It's called Last Chance Trendy by Reenie Crofts. I pulled a fella last night. He wore tight jeans. Well, they were tight round his middle. Nah, lower than that. Cause his rop, like a bag of wet tripe, spilled over. We were a big lad. He wore a white shirt open, showing a medallion with words on. And it were gold. No. He couldn't have held his head up. Not with a golden size of that. More like a plate of jam jar lid. This pendant nestled in wiry grey on his chest, shining as light played on it. And when he laughed, and his bag of tripe wobbled. It did a dance. Here where his heart should be. 
It hung on a thick, heavy chain that must have been nicked from the lav. That's what caught me eye, his medal. And its words, Sex Olympics. I couldn't make out which year. He fondled it, chuffed that I'd seen it, and asked if I liked it. He was so proud I could only say yeah. He'd a corrugated skin neck and a mouthful of pearly white choppers that clicked and he started to chat me up. He offered a drink, I'll have off. You're not a beer lass, more like a gin lass. Cause whiskey makes you frisky and brandy makes you randy. Can I hold your hand? Hold me and what? He had what I call factory air, steel grey and greasy. Swept right from the nape of his neck and over into a fringe. When he got excited, his teeth clicked, his head bounced, and his hair sort of split. A centre parting widened and a shiny pink scalp peeped through. He'd stroke it from back to front and grey carpet fell back in place. He talked about pot and grass, so I thought he must be a gardener. He mentioned bread and he said it a lot, so I thought he might be a baker. Then he said he'd a car and he'd take me home. We could make sweet music together and his car was a BMW. So we left the pub and crossed to his BMW. He fiddled with the key in the lock, in the handle of the door of his bloody mangled wreck. We sat in. He started the music. Now can I hold your hand? Hold me and what? Then he started to fumble round my knees, then he stroked from my thigh to my waist. He leaned over, choppers clicking, and he asked me to get in the back. I said, no! He fair begged. Go on, get in the back. No, I repeated, but he still insisted I get in the back. It's Christmas. Must have thought all his presents had come at once. Why won't you get in the back of my BMW, he says. I want to stop here, in front, with you. Well, thanks for that, Rini. That sounds like an appropriate description of a lot of people I know. I just hope it wasn't me at the time. Um, I don't think it was. No, I don't think I've ever been that big. Anyway, back in 1991, Healy Writers Group were members of the Federation of Worker Writers and Community Publishers. Now, that's a gobful if ever there was one. Uh, it, was, it was funded by the Arts Department, and actually, it was quite an entertaining and worthwhile project, I think, at that time, until someone embezzled all the funds and ran off with it. So, that, that, I think that's when it disappeared. <laughs> But, uh, well, certainly the money disappeared, even if the uh, Federation of Worker Writers and Community Publishers didn't. Now, back in 1991, 
when we did this pieces of eight tape, I was on the Board of Governors at Parkwood College in Sheffield. Parkwood College was part of uh, a reorganisation of Sheffield Colleges by the Sheffield City Local Education Authority branch of the council. And everybody knows what I think about Sheffield Council, but there you go. Now, it was called tertiary, that was it. There was a tertiary education. That disappeared, thankfully. Anyway, what I did while I was there, I used my influence to organise a little competition in the arts department to produce a cover for Pieces of Eight, which I did, and it's a beautiful parrot. And if you look at the beginning of this podcast, you'll find an image of that parrot there. And it was a girl called Gillian Dyer, who in 1991 was on the art course, fine art course at Parkwood College. I've tried to search for her and can't find her to say that I'm still reminded of her every time I look at this CD, and now you will be reminded of her too. So if you know a Gillian Dyer who was in Sheffield Parkwood College in 1991 in the arts course, please ask her to get in touch with Urban Tiger Radio. I would love to make contact again. Anyway... Coming up next are a couple of poems, actually three poems by Nick Pollard. I'll I'll run them together. I'll just tell you a little bit about them. There's Brigadoon, which is, uh, I will allow Nick to describe that one to you. And then there's Bicycle Lane, which is about how people dispose or don't dispose of unwanted items and the uh, joy it brings to other people who fall foul of them. And then there's Mood Dreams, which is Nick looking over... Every time I hear this one, I I imagine Nick looking over a wall in Derbyshire, watching a cow laid down there chewing the cud. And this is Nick's way of trying to imagine what the cow itself is thinking. It's probably more intelligent than me, so uh, I'll leave that to Nick to decipher. So coming up next is Brigadoon, Bicycle Lane and Mood Dreams, One after the other by Nick Pollard. Brigadoon. He grew up too late. Rye nylon shirts and string vests mother piled. His sister's legacy to tuck them well inside his underpants. Each day, clean and newly wet behind jug ears. Blue suited, waistband high above his belt. Each day, off the bus to Brigadoon, he steams hot breath through the railings. Each day, Vernon dips his bag of spice, fifty years too young. Jealous outside school gates, works, now his fingers spread these rusty bars. Envy those who yet remain inside the closing village, each day on day, one day closing. Despite the boarding up, the bulldozers, still Vernon wishes his return from life. And when his sister dies, then they'll have to let him, won't they? Bicycle Lane Miles, your bike appeared under a kid in our street, although by then its untired back wheel ran rims. The mechanics of mischief left its aching frame to prop a wall. Back from the pub last Tuesday, I tangled with the handlebars, dismembered and made desolate it looked with a brick. I thought its miseries were over, but Saturday night a pedal was crying in the gutter for its mate. The saddle squatted in a garden, deranged and deflowered. This morning, still not quite expired, chain segments writhe in the tarmac of the bicycle where I live. Moo dreams. Cow sleeps in the field, curled like a puppy, like a babe, listening to the deep beat, the pulse below the soil. 
Quiet beneath gentle blinds, moist moo dreams gleam and flicker, pumping softly to the deep beat, the pulse below the soil. Now here's another short story for you, and this is a short story called Somebody Screaming by David Rigg. I last saw David a few years ago now, David's younger than me, as most people are, as Brian keeps pointing out. And David moved to France somewhere around and around La Rochelle the last time I heard. And uh, he had a beautiful Belgian wife. And I'm hoping that David is having a very good life. David was a good writer. And he, he went to France in order to pursue that. And I, I hope he managed to. I've not kept touch. and But neither has David. Keeping touch is a two-way street, as we all know. This story is about the dangers of youth hosteling, uh, which a lot of people think might be quite a safe and pleasant thing to do. David has concerns in this story, and the story is Somebody's Screaming. When the screaming started, I was jerked out of sleep as though I'd been hit by a bus. I sat bolt upright and tried to make sense of what I was hearing. I couldn't. Someone was screaming. That was all I knew. Not that I could see them in the dark, but there were six beds in the room, two doubles and four singles, all in line without a gap between them. It had been my idea. Of course, the Jeet had other bedrooms, three in fact, but they were filthy, with grubby floors of cracked terracotta and cobwebs falling like net curtains from the ceilings, and a stink, like cesspits on a hot day. It was more than we could bear. So I said, why don't we move all the beds into one room and clean it up a bit? There's comfort in huddles. The only room large enough to accommodate all eight of us was directly beneath the hayloft. Now and then I heard tiny feet scamper overhead, and when I did I looked at the others to see if they'd heard it too. If they had, they weren't about to admit it. Chrissy was in the end bed, the one nearest the door. I was next to her. They're not in the same bed, you understand. It dawned on me it was Chrissy who was screaming now. Chrissy, I said, struggling to find my voice. What's the matter? Are you all right? What's wrong? came a tiny frightened voice. I think it belonged to Jeff, though it carried a higher pitch than usual. I don't know, it's Chrissy. She must be having a bad dream. The blackness of the room was absolute. Shutters on the windows, you see. Not the faintest flicker of moonlight or anything else. My eyes were fixed on the invisible space where I knew Chrissy must be. I thought I should do something. Reach out a comforting hand, anything, just to put a stop to the bedlam. But I couldn't. It was beyond me. I was no more able to work my trembling limbs than a granite statue. I could hear Chrissy thrashing on her bed. Tiny squeezed sobbing noises gathered in her throat and then erupted in fearful bellows. She seemed to be beating something. Her mattress, perhaps, or the wall, I couldn't tell. I can't get out! I can't get out! she cried frantically. Let me out, you bastards! I'll kill you! I'll kill you! Thump! Thump, thump, thump! Huge vibrations reached me through the wooden frame of my bed. Wake her up, said Simon, and Alison piped up. Yeah, give her a shake! Stop her screaming, Piper! It was down to me. Well, I was the nearest, wasn't I? Forcing myself to act, I reached out slowly in Chrissy's direction. 
It wasn't easy. I had visions of Freddy Krueger tearing my arm off. I began to consider the possibility that I was the one having the nightmare, and somebody really ought to come along and wake me up. Chrissy was sobbing fitfully now. As I reached towards her, I could feel the rest of them sitting there in the dark behind me, hypnotised by the screaming. I could smell their fear. And at the same time, I found myself wondering, is this some sick joke? You know, I stick my arm out into the darkness, and all of a sudden Chrissy grabs my hand and yells, Where's my dinner, Norman? And the light comes on, and what do you know? Everyone laughs at dumb old Piper falling for such an obvious con. Thump. Thump, thump. Thump, thump, thump. God, she'd hurt herself if she wasn't careful. Chrissy? I spoke her name quietly, trying to calm her, to draw her out of her frenzy. I didn't know what else to do. I was beginning to think I was wasting my time. She didn't even hear me, when suddenly the noise stopped and silence fell on us like a dead weight. I must have got through. Yet the silence was almost more unnerving than the screaming, and I felt goose pimples rising on my skin. Chrissy? Hey, listen, it's, it's me, it's Piper. I'm right here. It's all right. Tell her it's all right, said Rachel, and I heard Peter chuckle nervously and tell her to be quiet. It's Piper, Chrissy. Everything's okay. You've just been having a bad dream, that's all. Bad dream? Stoner crows. What did I know? She could have been murdered in her bed. She might be lying there right now, dripping blood from a six-inch wound and pumping out her last precious breaths. Or maybe she was no longer herself. Maybe she'd turned into something else, you know, grown hair on the palms of her hands, teeth like big razors. Supposing she'd lost her mind, flown the coop, and was sitting there beside me in the pitch blackness with a sick evil grin on her face and an axe in one hand. She didn't bear thinking about Encouraged by the others, I somehow managed to keep a grip on myself. I continued speaking her name, reassuring her, telling her everything was just fine. I could sense her listening, locating the sound of my voice, homing in. And that's when it hit me, like a punch to the jaw. The light. We'd been leaving the light on in the toilet down the corridor. It shone dimly through the frosted glass of the bedroom door. That's why Chrissy had wanted to sleep on the end, so she could see the light if she woke. She'd told us she was claustrophobic, and her fear would confront her in the night. She would dream she was crawling through dark tunnels on her hands and knees with no headroom, and somebody would seal off both ends, and she'd be clapped and would start screaming and kicking and clawing at the walls, or she'd be forced to lie down in a concrete box by uniformed men with lean, hungry faces. Her hands would be tied behind her back and her mouth would be gagged, and they would laugh and joke as they lowered the lid, sealing her in. She'd wake up in a desperate panic and it was the light that would bring her out of it, dismissing the dream and bringing back reality. But tonight someone had switched it off and there was nothing she could fix her eye on that would tell her she was awake and the horror was behind her. All at once I felt a cold, clammy hand on my arm. I almost screamed myself then. Chrissy crawled sobbing like a petrified infant into my lap. I tried to console her. I stroked her hair and back. I held her. As if he'd been reading my mind, Peter switched on the little table lamp in the corner. 
and I watched heavy shadows fall across Chrissy's ashen face. There were tears streaming down her nose and cheeks. Her eyes were the eyes of an animal going for slaughter, filled with a terror that was almost insanity. The light seemed to act like a switch in her head, but almost exactly the same moment as the darkness dispersed, Chrissy's vice-like grip on me relaxed. Her breathing slowed and she became sleepy. Her head rolled forward onto her chest. Don't let me go back in there, she murmured. Don't let me go back to a filmy wall of sleep. She fell back onto her own bed and unconsciousness washed over her. I lifted her covers and dropped them gently onto her fetus-like body. And all the time I was doing this, I tried very hard to ignore the splashes of blood on the sheets and pillow and on the wall beyond her bed. She slept like a child in the comforting light of the lamp and didn't stir till morning. That's more than could be said for the rest of us. Coming up next is another story by Mike Hoy. One of Mike's penchants was for retelling history. He always thought that especially fairy tales or old songs or rhymes always got it wrong and that there was a, a separate and different explanation. Now, I suppose, actually, Mike was probably right because all these things were passed down verbally. This one was put out onto iron oxide tape and so, therefore, is now indelible. So here's Mike's version of Snow White. Most stories are sheer propaganda. That means full of stuff that ain't right. And we've all been taken in by it. You've heard it, Taylor, Snow White. Well, she weren't called Snow for a kick-off. I'll tell you how true story goes. When Queen Gertrude White had a baby, she christened little lass Rose. Well, Gertrude was queen at West Riding in days when Yorkshire were great, when pork pies were six for a farthing, cans of bitter a penny for eight. Well, tell you how Gertie were evil and eight children baked in a pie, putting on lipstick, rouge and eyeshadow. Well, every word of that is a lie. It was daughter that were badden and sat eating doughnuts with cream. Gert were usually down pavilion making tea and egg butties for team. Rose White were a loose piece of baggage and caused all kinds of upset, like going to bed with fast bowler instead of practising hard in the net. It was Rose got them lies told about Gertie, how she were a great wicked witch. But one day they'd had a big quarrel and Gert walloped Rose with a switch. I don't care where that queen of... Green Rosie rubbing her pain and took off a white shirt and flannels and in shorts it's the lorry to Spain. And there in ancient Basque country met Dopey and Snorty and Pidgets and Boozy and Smoky and Randy, a complete set of cricketing midgets. She got her name Snow from sniffing the stuff we had set of unprincipled cheaters. She passed on secrets of Yorkshire, turned dwarves into bloody world beaters. So when Gertrude turned on her TV expecting to watch a great game, she saw a dwarf eleven beating Melbourne with tactics that put Surrey to shame. So she sent a groundsman to Rosie with a message conciliatory and kind, saying if Rose had come back to Yorkshire, Gert wouldn't ever catch her behind. But Snow White just wouldn't listen and threw down a challenge to Gert that if Tykes had played dwarves at Ganeka, she'd make sure that Yorkshire had dirt. Of course, Gertrude took up the gauntlet, got her cricketers ready for Spain, made half a dozen egg butties and puddings to take on the plane. Yorkshire thought they'd need just one innings to beat opposition, foreign and small. They didn't know Snow White's head groundsman had made a remote control ball. 
Dwarves wouldn't toss in that first innings, and tight bowlers were a disgrace. That ball kept playing at boundary, and they could get neither backspin nor pace. Rose sat with control box on sidelines, and had a right chuckle and gloat, because after a few hours batting, Dwarves declared at 500 for out. Yorkshire's batting were worse than bowling. Well, you see, Geoffrey Boycott weren't there. They'd hardly reached double figures before they were down to the last pair. But lucky for Yorkshire tail-enders in their attempt to avoid follow-on, the new ball began to malfunction and Peg, the last man, cracked it one. The ball exploded and burst into flames. A panic was started by Peg's it. Dwarves were trampled to death at the gate. You shouldn't put your basket in one exit. That's the true story of Snow Blinking White, but I bet you've all heard another. You see, she escaped and went over to the hills, and later she found a new lover. This is where he gets it serious bit, and there must be no more scoffing. The bloke she found had a cloak and fangs and slept in a fiberglass coffin. Warrior vampire, warrior, you were a blockbuster writer called Grim, and all them lies about good Queen Gert and Snow White, it's all down to him. Well, thank you, Michael, but we all knew that Yorkshire was God's own county anyway. And I've had a close affinity with the Seven Dwarfs all my life due to my lack of stature. Bryony says I have a combination of two of them, Dopey and Grumpy. I'll let you make your own mind upon that one. Coming up next is a poem from me, actually. I haven't read this poem for many, many a year. It's called Carousel. And... I was looking at a carousel horse one day uh, in a fair and it seemed to me that this horse at some point in its life had taken one huge leap in order to sort of escape gravity or, or set itself free and every time it got tantalisingly close to the ground life lifted it up again and it never had the chance to settle. And I wondered if it had regretted making that huge first bound for freedom. Anyway, whatever. Here is Carousel by me, Bill Allerton. There was a time when we were both still, your world and I. And in that time I leaped. And with that single bound the world began. And life became that simple arc. The falling of my hooves tripped music from the trodden air. We rose upon its swell and grazed along the soft declivity of perfect counterpoint and harmony. And still we saw, and still the world I sought to leave with one such mad impetuous kick streams past in vast immensity, beyond the wildness in my dreams. And still we fly, our muscles locked and bound with brass and lacquer, our destinies warped beneath a panoplied sky into a sugar-frosted prayer wheel, dedicated to a festive sprite. My nostrils flare in fear at the import of my own but single step, and the consequence we share. We stride with eyes of taut dispassion, pivotal, orgasmic, and the shriek of wind on fluted wood. Our manes are zephyr-combed, our tails a streaming cloud by which we steer. The pertness of our ears collects the rushings of the world to add confusion to the dark frustration sealed tight in alabaster throats. And still we reach across the blaze and shadow of a fleeting world, with time enough to dwell upon unbridled passions in my soul, and the soft, still silence I must bring if once more the earth should fall beneath my feet. 
So now you know. And when you see someone who seems to float so effortlessly free and their life seems as though they don't touch anything, it makes you wonder if the problem is they don't know how to land and regain contact with the rest of us. Coming up next are two poems from Nick Pollard again. I realise this is starting to look like the Nick Pollard Mike Hoy show, but... Healy Writers was about a certain few. There were a lot more members of Healy Writers than are represented on this tape, but a lot of them didn't feel that they were able to vocalise their work or record it or, or, or put themselves out there. And you have to remember that we were all sort of 40s and we all thought we were going to be the next great writer, poet, whatever, and some of us were quite shy of actually becoming that. I, it was quite a curious uh, phenomenon, but I do know several musicians who are like that who get very, very close to being very, very well known and then sort of retreat into their own shell, one in particular, but I shan't name him here. Anyway, these two from Nick Pollard. One is I Hear You Calling Me, and the next one is Other Nights. I like other nights particularly. I hear you calling me, I recognise from my own meagre attempts to play a musical instrument and uh, other nights I recognise very, very much from my childhood, my own bringing up in uh, Healy, Highfields, Abbeydale, Mearsbrook, Millhouses, all around there. I was that child. So here we have Nick Pollard. I hear you calling me. Under this monolith flat lies duck, sun and pinker's tottering shop, beneath whose crinkled gilt sign my brother, serious and chubby, gripping a black-cased brass trumpet. Fierce, arcane knightly rites of torment do your practice, boy. Raised from death, brash, faltering, then pure above the banners of the British Rail Staff Association Band, Trembling, tear-soaked, mournful in the wet winter evening. I hear you calling me. Now in the works yard, a western-class diesel dies wheelless. Up Victoria Hill, amidst accident-scarred train sets, in the last dingy window grill, dull varnish and valves ungreased, await another child's foghorn kiss. Other Nights Late September, Daktari breaks a twig. He freezes. Bush birds rip. But city-fresh ivory hunters know no jungle law. Reckless, he barrels through snagging brush, wrecks dry stems, kicks leaves to a sudden chasm across a fallen log. Slips. Rotten wood. Soles scuffed smooth for the early frost. Jumps. Tumbles in old lawn cuttings. Rank, stained, cunning camouflage, his smell one with the forest, they'll not scent this native dodge. Coolly he walks home to the reserve, back before nightfall, safe as condensation pimples the gate. Where have you been? Tea's ruined. Look at the state. Some boys chased me. Other nights he did not exaggerate. And now to finish off this podcast of side one of Pieces of Eight. Verse and Worse from Sheffield 8 by Healy Writers. 
we have Mike Hoy again. Now, Mike is going to retell history again, uh, set in the Napoleonic Wars, and this is Gunner Joe. Have you heard Stanley Holloway's story of Joe Cannonball v Spencer, a gradely tale but not quite right, because in them days each ship had a censor. Joe were a gunner on good ship Victory, a jack tar on blue ocean wave, and on day at Battle of Trafalgar he saved Nelson from a watery grave. Now Joe, he'd been fed up with sailing, shooting cannonballs made out of lead, a scurvy, ship's biscuits and floggings, and not having a bird in his bed. So he'd picked up this French lass in Cali, last time he'd ventured ashore. It really had been quite an achievement, as he could only say we oui and a more. He'd smuggled her into his hammock as victory put out to sea, and he thought he'd be all right this voyage with French lass, sweet Michelle, R.D. Her bosom was soft and her derriere firm, and her lips gave old Joseph a thrill. But the wind blew strong and weather were rough, and his hammock could never keep still. Miss Hardy didn't like this much either. She were mustard keen being French. Joseph let her polish his cannon, but that weren't enough for the wench. So she dressed up smart like a captain, and strutting her stuff on the deck, happened to meet Admiral Nelson and said, in French of course, Who heck? The Admiral were quite taken by her. Her ratio never was slow. He were just about to engage her, when a lookout on Crow's Nest sought foe. So Nelson, adjusting his eyeglass till it were its original size, said England expected his duty and decided to put the crew wise. So straightway went to his locker to string up a message on eye. It certainly wakened lads up and brought tears to many an eye. For when he saw what he said England expected, Nelson fell overboard in disgrace for fluttering their yard arm with French knickers and nylon and lace. Michelle had been doing her washing and strung it together to dry. She pulled a good stroke for her country, because it looked as if Nelson would die. Then there weren't half an explosion, as a shot filled the crew with alarm and blew Joseph out of a porthole with a cannonball under each arm. He landed next to Lord Nelson, who were doing his hardest to float. "'There's gaffer here, Sithy,' Joe shouted. "'Won't someone lower a boat?' Joseph could stand it no longer when a ratio came back to the top. He said, I'll save the Admiral if I can let these here cannonballs drop. When they got him back to victory, Nelson looked like a twice-drowned rat. Joe tried to give him kiss a life, but he insisted that Ardy do that. After a snog, Nelson the battle he won, but a bullet in art made him solemn, snooked his hopes of a job in Fleet Street where he'd once been offered a column. Nelson died without leaving a message about Joe being an hero and all, so our lad were cashiered from Navy for losing his majesty's ball. And now we all know why Nelson was so eager to be kissed by Hardy. I think I might have made the same request myself. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed side one of Pieces of Eight. There's quite a lot more on the other side, but I'm not going to put that in this podcast. That's time for another one. And this is a real trip down memory lane for me. And as you know, I like to do that. So I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank all of Healy Writers just for existing. I'd like to thank the Healy Writers group for existing too. And I hope that all of Healy Writers who are represented on this tape are still in existence. I know I am just, I'm clinging on there. The fingernails are getting a bit tired, but uh, I'm hanging in there. And so... Thank you for listening to this podcast. This is Urban Tiger Radio. I'm Bill Allerton, and I hope I bring you enjoyment every week. So listen again, 
I think next week it may well be a conversation piece with another musician. Or it could even be a novelist, but you'll have to tune in to find out. Okay, so this is Bill Allerton saying thank you very much for listening. Goodbye, and please remember that to download and use our podcast yourself is absolutely fine, but to rebroadcast them is strictly prohibited. Okay, thank you, and goodbye. Just lay your fingers on the rails And you will find that without fail Vibrations from the engine room They're gonna get you home safe soon Well, that's all for this week's show, folks. I hope you enjoyed your free podcast from Urban Tiger Radio. And if you've hit that subscribe button, you'll be hearing from us again in a week's time. So it's a goodbye from me and a... From Nelly. Bye-bye. Shovel in the coal that keeps the fire burning in the soul. See safe to harbor.